for those who are earlier in their career that are listening, my advice is to truly follow your passion. I think we are most effective when we are doing what we're truly passionate about. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Recovery, the podcast that's passionate about how we can make healthcare more sustainable for people and the planet. It's produced by Cochrane Sustainable Healthcare and co-published with the BMJ. I'm Ray Moynihan from Bond University in Australia, and my co-host is Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ. And today, Fee, we're going to to Boston, to Harvard, uh, to hear a very inspiring physician. Tell us about Renee. Yeah, well, this is really going to be a great conversation uh, with Harvard-based emergency physician Renee Salas, who I've been an enormous fan of for a long time, and she's written some great pieces in the BMJ. And just to point out, and elsewhere. And sorry, and there are there other, are other journals <laughs> in the world. Yeah, I don't like. I don't like to talk about that. Um, no, she's really been a, a, a fantastic influence on 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 many people. Her thinking has been, and she writes very powerfully. And she's testified before the U.S. Congress on the health impacts of climate change, which shows that this is actually somewhere something where you've got to put yourselves in the political arena. And the impacts of climate change on health is now, I would say, the focus of her career. And I think she talks too about how you know very large amounts of the remaining fossil fuels have to stay in the ground if we're going to meet this crisis. And and she cites a, a very recent Nature paper on that issue. I think a, a really crucial thing about Renee is that she speaks as a working doctor. She's in the emergency department at Mass General, you know, really famous hospital in Boston. Um, and, and the way she presents the idea of engaging in the politics of climate change is just another just a, well, an important, a crucial extension of the doctor's traditional responsibility to look after patients. And that is something we've been trying to say at the BMJ for a long time, which is that this is mainstream now, protecting the planet, climate change, tackling those things, is what doctors should be doing um, as part of their responsibility. And that's one of the things that really, I think, will grab you about what Renee has to say, is that if you listen closely, I think she's really saying that the role of the doctor has changed, is changing, must change in order to meet this challenge. Yeah, and I think a lot of doctors listening will feel the discomfort in that, that, you know, they've got a lot to do and and, and they may not know that, feel that they know enough to take this on. But I think that's also part of the, of the new role of doctors is to become informed and to add their very trusted voice to this important fight. my realization of how climate change was already harming my patients and disrupting healthcare was a fork in the road and really led me to follow a calling to focus my academic career on climate change and health. So one way I like to think about it is as a misdiagnosis. So I will use a a quick patient example, but there was a patient whose wife called 911 because he was acting confused during a record-breaking heat wave in Boston. We found his core temperature in my emergency department to be 106 degrees Fahrenheit. And while his diagnosis was heat stroke, I think I quickly began to realize that there was a secondary diagnosis that I had been missing, and that was climate change. 
And so secondary diagnoses are really just things that make it harder for us to either prevent a primary diagnosis or manage a primary diagnosis. And despite these realizations very early, data has supported that. So there was a recent study that came out that actually found that heat-related deaths in the 1990s and early 2000s, that a third of them were attributable to climate change using data from over 200 U.S. cities. And so, you know, when we make that diagnosis, though, we realize the treatments that this mandates falls outside of my usual toolbox as an emergency medicine doctor. But it became very clear to me that it was crucial that we address it. And and that led me to my career path. So in, in what way did your work life change? In what way did you as a doctor change the way you practice medicine? How, how did it change? Yeah. So I, I think as you'll realize through our conversation, I'm big on analogies. I'm a very visual uh, person in the way that I think and about things. So for me, I think this actually comes back to the river parable, which many may have heard of. And that's the I feel like in the emergency department, I stand on the side of the river pulling drowning patients out, only to find many more behind them. And so it is imperative to actually walk upstream and figure out what is causing these patients to fall into the river in the first place and stop the source there, because that lessens the patient burden in the river. So for me, that meant figuring out how to get upstream. And so I got my master's of public health with a concentration in environmental health. And so now I feel my day-to-day is actually running up and down the river, both working at the individual patient level, but then also going upstream in order to get to the root cause. And I found that that root cause far upstream is fossil fuel pollution, both in air pollution and the carbon pollution driving climate change. And so I, we're all on the same river, independent of, of wherever listeners are, uh, and every action along that river is crucial. That's so great to hear about those visual images. And clearly, you know, for a lot of people, the visual images around climate change are the polar bears on the melting icebergs, the bushfires, the extreme weather events, um, but perhaps rather less about human health or healthcare because it's all a bit sort of more, um, you know, everyday and, and not so dramatic. But you argue very powerfully that impacts on health should be a central driver for, for action against climate change. T- tell us why. The faces of climate change are you and I. It's our children. It's our aging parents. It's our neighbors. And if data were enough in order to mobilize us as a society and as a global community towards the action on climate change we needed, then we would have responded to the climate scientists' sounds of alarms decades ago. And so I passionately believe that health is that common ground that we all can stand on. And we can actually put a human face to this data because numbers numb, but stories stick. And we can tell those human stories and really show that climate change is here and now, and it's impacting our health today and will increasingly so in the future. And if that's not a good enough motivation to act, then I don't know what is. And can you tell us more about those specific ways in which human health is impacted, what the pathways are for for impact on human health? So it is frighteningly broad, (laughs) but I think of climate change sort of first and foremost as a meta problem, meaning that underlies so many of the other problems that face 
health today and our society today, but also a threat multiplier, meaning that it makes those problems worse. So there are multiple exposure pathways, which differ based off where we live and what it is that we experience as those exposures. So it can be everything from extreme heat, which is universal, but actually the temperature at which people become harmed and get hospitalized, at least in the United States, actually differs by region. So even that varies. And I think heat exposure is really our best studied way in which climate change harms health. And we know that it affects cardiopulmonary outcomes and renal outcomes, but it also interferes with our sleep uh, and causes mental health exacerbations. There was even a study that found that it was linked to microbial resistance to antibiotics. Talk about a threat multiplier. But then there's a host of other exposures, whether that's air quality impacts like heat driving more ground level ozone and higher pollen in the air with longer seasons or impacting the food and water that keep us healthy. The extreme weather events, I mean, those have numerous different catastrophes. And the wildfire smoke, as climate change intensifies wildfires, has been something we've seen across the United States. And we had poor air quality here on the East Coast from things that were happening on the West Coast, just showing our interconnected nature. Vector-borne diseases are getting worse, and let alone social factors like displacement. And I can't think of a population that's harder to keep healthy than one that is displaced and unable to access their home healthcare network. And then that leads to the last bucket, and that's healthcare system disruption, that we can have all of the knowledge in the world and know how climate change impacts health. But if we don't have the infrastructure, the power, and the supplies we need to provide high-quality healthcare, then we are already at a challenge. And so in the end, climate change is already harming health and disrupting our ability to provide high-quality health care. And I often describe it as an iceberg, that that's just what we know above the surface. And there's so much more that's being discovered and needs to be discovered. When I find myself talking about health and climate change, I'm always struck by how narrow a definition of health people want to hear about from doctors um, and, and health professionals. Uh, they want it to be about vector-borne diseases and about you know illness of that sort. They don't really make the leap towards social disruption, war, conflict, food and water shortages, um, displaced people, extreme, all, all of those things that don't really come into their definition of what health and well-being means. So how do we, how do we press that home? Yeah, it, it's a great point. And I think, at least for me in the way that I have thought about it, is sort of getting back to that secondary diagnosis uh, type of phenomenon in the sense that there are so many things that are making it harder for us to either manage those diseases that we commonly feel are normally within our typical realm or to be able to prevent. And if a patient is displaced outside of their country uh, or even internally displaced within their own country, how they can't access their medicines, they can't answer, access their doctor. Uh, they are, I mean, the stress level alone of facing all of this. And I think mental health is that gigantic component to health that we have not really been able to to quantify yet and understand its downstream cascading impacts. And so I think it's, for me at least, it's just recognizing that these secondary diagnoses are, are directly impacting our patients to some degree. And we have to take a broader look at this because our patients are 
looking for us to improve their health and prevent harm and advance equity. And we can't do that unless we take a broader scope and run upstream and, and find these these sources of disease and inequities in the first place. We could talk more about all of these things. There's so much to talk about, Renee, but maybe before we talk more about what, you know, what actual systems and managers and policymakers can do, maybe we need to talk a bit about the the carbon footprint of healthcare itself, because that's another part of this story, that the the things that doctors do, the drugs, the tests, the the devices and so on, are also, I think, contributing to the problem of climate change through the carbon emissions and so on. And there's a new science emerging of trying to measure the carbon footprint of healthcare and trying to dramatically reduce that. I mean, in, how do you see that problem? Is, is this a related problem? How do you see it? So I often describe it as the yin and the yang uh, in order to use that concept. Once again, a visual. But I focus primarily on how climate change is harming health and disrupting healthcare systems. But then there's that, that vicious cycle that circles right back. And that's how the healthcare system is impacting climate change and worsening that. And I think that's so crucial for us to recognize that this is all a vicious cycle because it allows us to be able to frame healthcare sustainability for exactly what it is. And that's it's a prescription for health and equity for our patients and communities. And so we have to help healthcare providers recognize that so they don't see it as abstract, but they actually see it on par with an albuterol inhaler or steroid prescriptions for an asthma exacerbation. And so... I also think that when we think about healthcare's contribution, we recognized that at least 2016 data globally that it was about 4 to 6% of emissions. Now, in countries like the United States, we are uh, significantly higher than that. And so it's been estimated at most recently at 8.5% approximately, though upwards of 10% of emissions. And so, I mean, that's obviously a significant contribution, but I want to just lead quickly to one broader point, and that's the most recent Nature paper, which I'm sure everyone has seen. But that was looking to see the amount of fossil fuels that would have to be left in the ground for a 50% probability of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2050. And they found that 60% of oil and fossil um, fuels and methane gas and 90% of coal must remain unextracted in order for us to stay within this 1.5 degrees Celsius carbon budget. And so I think we can't lose sight of that. And so I think of healthcare sustainability in a theory of change model. And that's recognizing that that's our ultimate end goal is that we want to keep global temperature below 1.5. And we need a very low carbon emission pathway to get there. And I think healthcare sustainability is a crucial step in that theory of change to get to that end goal, because we can't look at the log and uh, uh, you know, call out the speck, I should say, in someone else's eye when we have a log in our own. So we have to take address our home footprint first. But we also have to see that that is on path towards the larger mission and that we can catalyze that change by showing that healthcare sustainability and decarbonization of our global economies is a prescription for health and equity. And how radical a change do you see that would require, Renee, to actually get to that low carbon you know, really, really getting emissions down, just specifically about healthcare. What what really needs to, to change to get to that goal? It requires a complete transformation of our systems. 
but and I think if you would have asked me that question before the pandemic, I think I might have not had the same faith that we could do it as I have now. And that comes from the fact that I have seen things change very rapidly around me here and in the United States in regards to our ability to adapt our hospital and our systems in order to face the challenge of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we can do the same thing for climate change if we have the appropriate resources, the appropriate knowledge, and the motivation to act. And I think that's the key piece that's, that's missing right now is, is the motivation. We need the political will. And I view the health community as a sleeping giant on this. And I think if we can fully awaken the health community, we can get to that ultimate end goal uh, and show people the pathway there by, again, cleaning up our, our home first, as I like to say. And does that mean that we have to start measuring the carbon footprint of every test and every treatment? And if so, I mean, that's a whole new science that's just emerging. Is it possible? Is it feasible? But is, is that what we have to do or is there a different way? Well, I fully believe that we need evidence in order to guide our path forward, uh, whether that's for how to best adapt and protect those that are most harmed or for true mitigation or actually getting to the root cause and, and decreasing greenhouse gas emissions. But I think it's always a fine balance and threading the needle, right? That's so much, I think, of, of what this complex interrelated uh, challenge is. And that's recognizing we can't have analysis paralysis either, right? And this is coming from an emergency medicine doctor. But if a patient walks in and is crashing in front of me, I need to know enough information to act. But I also recognize the emergency of the situation and act with the knowledge that I have. And so we can't have analysis paralysis by, by digging too much into the data and not acting. And I think that all of that can happen as we move forward. And I agree, I think we need metrics that actually make sense to people and can help them make a connection back to that ultimate vicious cycle and recognize that healthcare sustainability and, and sustainability overall is a prescription for health. So we have to make it relevant to people and we need to be able to track that. But we also have to recognize that we are in a critical window of action and we know what needs to be done. Uh, we just need to get moving and develop the political will to do it. So do you see a role for clinical guidelines and for Cochrane systematic reviews in developing and disseminating this evidence base so that doctors and patients and policymakers can begin to, you know, really say, okay, these are the kind of interventions we, we should be encouraging. These are the ones we should be uh, trying to, trying to deprioritize. Completely. I think so much in work here uh, and what drives my fundamental view of how we have to address this is that this unprecedented challenge mandates unprecedented collaboration. And we have to share best practices with one another. And Cochrane reviews could be a, a key way to do that. So we need to use all existing avenues with which to disseminate evidence and best practices and learn from one another. We don't all need to recreate the wheel. And there will be a need to tailor things based off of the location that we're at, but there are general themes that we can learn independent of what continent we stand on. And, but we also need to develop additional ways to be able to share knowledge. And I, I love our academic system, but it's, 
doesn't always transmit the information and the speed with which may be required for some of these things. So I think we also need to think outside the box and transformationally about how we can come together in an unprecedented way and tackle this, because that's the only way we're going to successfully tackle this is if we do it together and share knowledge. Renee, you said we know what we've got to do and we should just do it, but do we really know how to transform healthcare quickly and efficiently? Isn't this actually a massive challenge, both intellectually, scientifically, politically, to try and sort of decarbonize healthcare when we know that the carbon footprint is so enormous? How do we get from acknowledging the need to do this to the actual kind of roadmap? Yeah. So again, this is the emergency medicine doctor in me in the sense that I, I feel that everything is is achievable. Uh, and so if there's a patient in front of me, I don't ever say, oh, this is, your disease is too complicated. I'm not going to actually address this because it's just, it's hard. I mean, it, this definitely is hard. This is the existential crisis of our time. But we as health professionals, we lean in to these hard diagnoses, right? This is what we train for. And so that's why I think we are, in many ways, optimally poised to show people how we can roll up our sleeves, work together, just like we all come together in a trauma bay in an emergency department to save that patient's life and figure out the path forward. And yes, I mean, there is a lot that needs to get figured out, but I, I have no doubt that we have the expertise we need. And you know, I've been inspired by what Nick Watts is doing with the NHS. I mean, he's a, a colleague and a friend and watching him just tackle this enormous challenge, but he had the resources, he had the backing politically in order to make those sweeping transformational changes. And so we are watching that unfold within the UK right now. And in many ways, I think that is a proof of concept that we can all learn from about how this can be done. So you mentioned the NHS, the National Health Service in Britain. Fee, you probably have a sense of what's going on there. Yeah, I agree, Renee. The NHS, uh, the green, greener NHS, NHS Net Zero has had a number of names, is a very inspiring and impressive achievement, even just the fact that it exists. But it, and it's based on really careful um, analysis of, of, of the healthcare carbon footprint over a period of years. Uh, and then and then a very, very uh, well developed um, and detailed plan about how to bring that carbon footprint down and and involving not just the direct carbon produced by healthcare but all of the kind of ancillary uh, carbon coming from suppliers coming from the supply chain coming from people traveling to and from healthcare appointments um, so it's a really broad scope um, and and trying to encompass every sort of element that, that contributes to the footprint and then um, plans for how to bring that down. It's going to have to be a, a very, very uh, radical change in, in many of the ways we do things. As you say, the pandemic has given us a bit of a model on that. Um, but the, the, the key thing from the start has been the political support, the political will, both within the NHS management structure, leadership structure, but also from politicians and, and, and government. Um, and I think it is leading the way and they're going to be at COP26. I think uh, it's it's a model that hopefully other countries will, will, will adopt, adopt. And, um, you know, I think there's there's real ambition there, but it, it's it's based in a proper strategy and, a, and an implementation plan that, that gives people confidence that it, that it really, really will happen. So all credit to those who've been part of that. And while we're on carbon footprints, can I ask you, Renee, but perhaps... Fee, if you want to comment too, I mean, 
you'd be aware there's some debate around the whole notion of a carbon footprint. And, and I recently read a piece in The Guardian, an opinion piece by a very senior commentator in The Guardian, saying that the whole notion of, of carbon footprint was kind of created by big oil to make, to make us feel bad um, and blame us as individuals when it's really kind of corporate greed. And, and that sort of, it, it shifts the focus from the massive structural reforms that are needed back onto sort of individual behaviour. I'm not really familiar with that debate, but that's the sort of rough outline that I can see. Do you have a view on that, Renee? I go back to that, the nature paper, and I think that that really highlights your point as well in the sense that we have to leave fossil fuels in the ground and we have to cut off that source that's fully upstream. So we can talk about our scope one, two, and three emissions. Um, and I think one thing I'll just note about all of those different scopes and how the healthcare system's carbon footprint, uh, again, well, that's our existing way in which we think about this. It touches so many things. And so from a healthcare leadership standpoint, we can start to catalyze and actually knock down, start knocking down the domino, so to speak, right, across all of these different sectors because healthcare does touch so many things. And so I think it's it's important for us to act on those levers. And we need to understand how carbon footprinting allows us to, to see where those different levers of action are. But I think to your point, we have to use that as again, truly that domino to get to the the wider systemic change that we need outside of healthcare. And I, I truly believe that I'll say it again that I think the healthcare community is a sleeping giant on this, and we have to put pressure on the broader forces that don't want us to stop using fossil fuels. And we have to frame it that it is a prescription for our patients. It is a prescription for equity. And plain and simple, I will I will never apologize for advocating for the patient in front of me. And that is all that we're doing by advocating for this. But we can't lose sight of these bigger system issues and instead use healthcare sustainability as a way to push against that and transform the larger system. Well, that's very powerful. You're really saying that the the responsibility of the contemporary doctor is to take up the fight. To mitigate climate change and for and for transformative change, it, it's back to to what Fee had brought up earlier, and that's in thinking about the ways in which things harm health. And in my, it, it it is beyond the the traditional box that I learned in medical school. But if we go back to that river analogy, it is just walking upstream a bit in order to get to the root cause of how our patients are being harmed. And so, it, in my sense, it is well within our our, our scope. Uh, and we just have to make those connections and see how our patients are being harmed. And for me, I don't want to put a bandaid on a bullet wound. I want to prevent the bullet wound to even happen in the first place. Can I ask your view on the kind of range of actions that individual doctors and, and health professionals might take? Um, you know, we have Extinction Rebellion. Uh, they seem to have, uh, in my view, appropriately shifted their approach from disrupting people going around their lives to actually focus protests outside major investment companies or banks about, you know, stop investing in fossil fuels, um, keep it in the ground, that kind of approach, which which I think in its own way is, is a better approach to get the public support for what they're doing. Um, 
but do you do you feel that doctors should be out you know individually protesting being arrested all the sorts of things that that can be done um and so that's one question and then and then other things that people who don't want to do that and lie down in the road what 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 would you suggest they do um as well as obviously you know trying to influence the political debate in other ways i often tell residents uh who i work with and are in our emergency medicine training program, that they will see a spectrum of practices um, from attendings uh, as they go through their training and that they will, we could send five different attendings in to see the same patient and get five different plans and, and none of them obviously wrong, just difference in practices. So I, if we view that a prescription for health is transitioning away from fossil fuels, then I think there's a, a spectrum there of, of treatments that people will view as applicable. And I think that is something for every individual to determine their own practice patterns, uh, so to speak, to continue that. And I, I think it's, I never would have thought about when I started this journey um, about having discussions with you about protesting and whether that's something a doctor should do. And I also, though, recognize the the emergency of this situation and that we do have to think about this in, in different ways. Just like we're trying to transform the system, we are in an emergency. And so that requires different actions than maybe typically people would uh, consider. Obviously, this is a crisis. You're an emergency doctor. You're used to making decisions in a crisis, but you still turn to the evidence as, as much as it's available to help you solve that you know clinical problem. So in this case, is there enough evidence available? And if not, you know, what's your message to those who fund evidence, who people like, you know, organisations like Cochrane, but 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 those the, those those bodies that that fund medical and scientific research, what what do they need to start doing um, to to produce this evidence quickly that can help guide us through this transformation that you say is so needed? We have to fund evidence generation and research at a scale that meets the scale of this crisis. Uh, and this area has been historically starved of resources. And we know enough, I, I say, to, to act and frame this as a health crisis, but we do need to know much more. But we have to have the resources with which to do that. I can't tell you how many people in training approach me and say that they want to dedicate their careers to climate and health. And we have to create a pipeline to train these individuals, but they currently don't exist broadly. Uh, and so we have to, to fund the research and also fund the training opportunities to train the next generation of leaders that we have to have in order to see us through this crisis. I, I wish that we could solve this tomorrow and, and I can go focus on something else and go back to, you know, go to the mountains uh, and work in a small clinic. <laughs> I always tell people that if we could fix that, that's what I would do. But it's, this is going to be a, a, a long haul uh, challenge. And so we have to put the, our money where our priorities are. And if our priority is truly tackling this in an evidence-informed way, then we have to have the research that allows that to happen with the urgency, speed, and expertise that's required. And which mountains would you go to, Renee? <laughs> I think we all have what whatever resonates our soul. And for me, mountains have always been that place. Uh, and so I, the, the bigger the mountain, the better. Uh, and so the Rocky Mountains are always a place I have uh, 
a family that that's from there. And my mom was originally from out there. So, uh, the Rocky mountains are always a, a place that calls, calls to me. We have nice mountains in the UK. They're just not quite as big as the Rockies, but you know, they, they earn their place. <laughs> but, but before you go to the Rockies, you're, you know, you're based at, at Harvard, you're, you're right there in Boston in a sense, that is one of the sort of centres of the world, if you will, in the in terms of the medical establishment. So you you really are having some effect. You're having you you know your voice is being heard, Renee, is it not? And and you're and you're starting to try and be that change that that you're advocating. Well, thank you. Yeah, I often tell people that if I had been asked, uh, I mean, definitely a decade ago, but even five years ago, what I'd be doing as a career focus, I would not have imagined it would include the suite of things that it currently does. And so for for those who are earlier in their career that are listening, I my advice is to truly follow your passion. I think we are most effective when we are doing what we're truly passionate about. And so when you open your computer at 11 o'clock at night, you want it to be something that you're truly passionate about. And I think that's where we are most effective as healthcare professionals and just as citizens, as if we're acting on what we truly feel is our calling. And so it's important to be able to follow that at every point in your career. And who knows where it will lead you, but at least my experience is it will lead you on a path of uh, fulfillment. I'm very interested to hear you, you know you saying that you hadn't expected to be talking about this in terms of how your career would would go and just speaking for myself and the journal uh, you know it's been a, a long standing theme but the fact that it's become really quite central to what we feel we need to do on the journal it is a surprise and I think some people you know have felt that wasn't the role of, of a journal but I just wanted to understand your sense of the credibility you bring to this argument and how important that has been um you know it's it, it's it's keeping oneself on the edge of of, of not becoming a, you know however urgent and, and anxious and worried one might be about the situation one's got to retain that level of of academic um clinical credibility in order to be useful in this debate and i feel that certainly with the journal that we it has to be just one part of what we do based in you know, the whole ethos of, of academic and clinical um, credibility. So, I mean, I don't know if you feel like you've had to work at that or ever felt like you wanted to step over that line. I go back to the the spectrum of practices uh, that exist in clinical medicine and I think exist in a response to, to this issue. And that's that I believe and, and have currently acted within existing systems. And I think that it's why we need so many of us to be able to act on, on numerous levers at the same time. But we have such a powerful foundation and platform and megaphone with which to disseminate this information as a, as a healthcare community. And I know that I have had the utmost respect and really thank you and your colleagues at the BMJ for embracing this because it is enormously powerful to have such an esteemed journal like the BMJ talk about this. And again, this goes back to just talking about it. And it brings it into the mainstream consciousness of our medical community. So we see that this is just a prescription for health. And this isn't something on the fringes, but is actually core and central to the very tenets of why we do what we do. And that's to improve health and prevent harm and advance equity. And that's that's all this is. That End of story. And I think lastly, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that we could 
throw up our hands and say that the situation is is really dire. And and the diagnosis is a hard one for sure, but there is nothing that brings hope like action. And that's how we all operate within our, our clinical responsibilities is that we, every day we go to work and we intervene on our patients and we act. And that's what we have to do here. And that's how we will find hope and catalyze that transformative action. Because I, I don't believe that there's anything that we can't do together. And collectively, if we put the weight of the global medical community behind this, I think we can move mountains. And I know we will. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Renee. Thanks, Renee. Well, thank you to all of you. This has been a, a, a true honor and privilege to do this. And so it's always a, an honor and privilege and to be able to, to have this conversation uh, and to, to share thoughts and, and dialogue and, and be inspired by you. Well, we're, we're thrilled to have you have you on and, uh, and I'm sure it'll be really, really w- well received because, um, you know, it, it's very articulate and credible and but also passionate. So that's really, really I love that. I love I, I, I very much loved what you said about following your passion. I yeah. think that's. I mean, I think when when we're when we're scientists, when we're researchers, when we're credible editors of 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 of, of the world's most influential journals, you know, there's a, there's a fine line you walk between reason and passion, and yeah. and and I think that celebrating that passion within the context of reason is a wonderful thing to do. So thank you for that. At the end of the day, we're humans, right? And humans are, we operate on story and passion and, and what drives us sort of internally. And so I... I yeah. I, and I think a lot of, I think academics um, may may worry about that, you know, stepping over the, a certain line, you know, at what point do you, do, you, do you get accused of being a campaigner, you know, but if the evidence is taking you, you know, if you're following the evidence um, and if it's clearly taking you in that direction, then you can't ignore that. You have to kind of continue to speak the truth, Mm. I guess. Well said. That was The Recovery, our conversation with Renee Salas, and there is nothing that brings hope like action. Thanks to Cochrane Sustainable Healthcare's Minna Johansson and Dina Muscat-Meng for production, Duncan Jarvis at the BMJ for podcasting assistance and to sound wizard Jan Mutz. 